Lord, we thank you for your love, for your passionate, relentless, jealous, after us, giving all love. We thank you for who you are and for your love for us. Lord, I pray that as we now look into your word, you'll help us to see your love. I pray that you'd help us to love you in return. Amen. Amen. So, we are in our year of increasing trust and uh, keeping on pushing the boundaries of of, uh, increasing our trust in God and uh, among us. Um, And we've been on our path from Genesis to Exodus 20 now, um, over a while here, we're getting the PowerPoint up, and this is the series we're on right now, God's vision for his people. God passionately loves his people. He passionately loves us, together and individually, he loves us. And we're, we're doing this God's vision for his people in ten words. And the ten words, we usually call that ten commandments, but literally in Scripture it says God spoke ten words. And um, so we're looking at that. We talked last time about how Exodus 20 to 23 is a treaty or a covenant between a great king and a subject people, and it follows that pattern that people were used to of how to make a contract, a commitment, a covenant, a treaty between them. So we asked, who or what is your king last time? This is where we ended. Who do you depend on, fear or love? Who do you serve? Who do you obey? Who or what or how do you choose your goals, your plans, for time, for money? Will you covenant to make God king and be his subject? Because that was the invitation in Exodus 19 to enter into a covenant and be part of doing this mission together to bless the earth, to show what this people are like. So I'm taking this out of Deuteronomy 4. We looked at the Exodus version of it. Just a review, remember what happened when God came to make that covenant and he said, he came ne- you came near and stood, Moses is now 40 years later reviewing for the children of the people and reminding them and making it theirs now. He says, you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while flames from the mountain shot into the sky. The mountain was shrouded in black clouds and deep darkness and Yahweh spoke to you from the heart of the fire. So Yahweh showed up on earth, he's been kind of out of place since Eden, he shows up with, with them, you heard the sound of his words, but didn't see his form. No one knows what he looks like. There was only a voice. He proclaimed his covenant, the ten words. Now, most tra- translations change it into commandments, because so that's what we're familiar with. But the ten words, which he commanded you to keep, and which he wrote on two stone tablets. So we talked last time about who and why. Who spoke? Yahweh spoke. Because we need to know Him. That's our biggest need. The one who had delivered them by His grace. It's a gracious welcome. We've already been delivered. And now we're in this covenant. And now here are the terms of the agreement and the covenant. We had already said, I do. And now we know these terms of how to love Him back. Who did He speak to? Only His people. So the ten words are God's words to His people. People. They're not really meant for everybody else. They're meant for us as his people. And we talked about if you have decided 
to follow God, then to make him your king, then these words are for you. If you're not sure about that, you're not sure about Jesus, you're not sure if you want to follow him, well, listen in and see. But, you know, don't get nervous like, who's God to tell me what to do? Well, if he hasn't delivered you, yeah, who is God? That's what you need to find out. Who is Jesus? Who is Yahweh? Um, Why not to be saved, not to please him, doing these things doesn't please him or get you saved. They were already saved and delivered. It's because he's worthy and because he welcomes us to join his mission as his people to bless the world, to bring this back to the world, his blessing to the world. So then we looked at what he said, and God spoke all these words. I am Yahweh. So whenever the Lord is capitalized, it's standing for his name. This is a specific God. This isn't just like God generally, generically. This is Yahweh. I am Yahweh, the Lord, your God. Your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So God has that relationship, that deliverance with us. And then he goes on and says, you shall have no other gods before me. NLT says, you must not have any other God but me. So one of the things we're going to look at is, well, are there other gods? So he's saying you should have any other gods before me. Does that mean there's other gods? Or are there not other gods? He's, it's kind of unclear here if, there's, if you're saying don't have any other gods in my presence or before me or ahead of me. Does that mean there are other ones or not? Um, he goes on and says, this is the second command, command or the second word. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind. That's an idol of any other god or an idol that's supposed to represent Yahweh God or an idol that's supposed to represent anything, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind, or an image of anything in the heavens, or on the earth, or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. God loves you enough, he's entered into this covenant enough, that he is not tolerating you having affection other places. If you're in a marriage relationship, would you feel good about your husband or wife going, oh, you're wandering off your date? <laughs> She's on it, even before I finish a sentence. Nope. I don't want my husband going off with anybody else or my wife going off with anybody else, doing anything else with anybody else. I want to know I'm number one. And I want to be number one to them and then be a number one to me. Right? If it ever starts to hint that we're number two or three or four, most of us get a little nervous, don't we? We get a little jealous. Um, He says he's a jealous God. That's a positive statement in the Hebrew. I'm jealous. I am. This is the problem with the jealousy is we we usually think of that in terms of a of a a negative jealousy. You know, like. When a boyfriend's jealous, when he doesn't really have any rights, there's no covenant yet, and he's getting upset because she's talking to somebody else. No, this is rightful jealousy. Um, you know, if, you, if there's adultery going on, you probably should get jealous, should get upset. I'm not, and he said, goes on and says, I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. Now, we get a little nervous about that, like, what? God's... God's but it's the reality. 
And even, even some modern science is, is talking about how it's not only do we inherit DNA, but there are also, um, and I forget what they're, they're called now, but uh, things that actually turn on and off DNA based on trauma. So that trauma can be passed on to the next generation. Or difficult things can be passed on to the next generation. So, all right, we have a, a, a counselor nodding her head, so I'm on, I'm on track here. Epigenetics, thank you for the word. Epigenetics. You can see why I forgot a big word like that. Um, so it's genetics, but then there's actually epigenetics that turns on and off things within a person so that some of their DNA is... But it can even be passed on to the next person. Um, but then real love can also switch it around again. So your sins, this is part of what we need to... We, we think of ourselves so individually, like, well, I, I might do this, I might dally around a little bit with this, but it's not a big deal. No, this is a big deal, not just for your life, but for your kids and your grandkids. It makes a difference. But here's the thing we really have to remember is that what I have in bold. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. So obviously this is what God really wants. He doesn't want those effects of sin and idolatry to be passing on to your kids and your grandkids. What he wants is to lavish his love on you and your kids and your grandkids and your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandkids. Right? And he loves to pass that on. To lavish his love on us. So his jealousy is because he is so passionately in love with us and wants to show that to us. But he also wants us to respond with love, all of our love, to him. So, um, a little review. A little over a year ago, we were talking about Jacob and him coming to the, to the ladder, the stairway to heaven, the, the uh, stairway to the gate of the gods that Yahweh showed up, which was a connection to Babel. Babel was a place where there was all this idolatry, and when they wanted to build a temple... Uh, on top of, this is from the Babel area. What's on temple on the top? There's an idol up there. What is on top? And what is the question? And we reviewed Tim Keller's book, um, which I would recommend, not that long a read, um, Counterfeit Gods, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and the Only Hope That Matters. His definition in here of what an idol is, he says an idol or a false god is anything more important to you than God? Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God? Anything you seek to give you what only God can give? Think about that. Anything fit that category for you? Anything come close to what your affection and your, your, uh, absorbs your heart and imagine, what absorbed your heart and imagination this week? Um, so the Lord, Yahweh, is the only one who's supposed to be at the top of that staircase. Now, if the Vikings happen to absorb your heart and imagination this week, um, sorry. Um, that, that reminded me of another quote from this one. Although false gods never fail to fail... It seems humans never fail to forget that this is indeed the case. 
just kind of reminds you of the Vikings a little bit, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> sorry. I watched the Vikings game too, so, or what was left of it after the elders meeting, but, uh, so the, um, but what is it about, I mean, think about it, it's, it's a kind of a joke, but why do we make the Vikings a big deal? Because they're a symbol for us, we don't. Well, let's talk about the wild then. (laughs) Okay. Got to know where people's real gods are. Um, so um, anyway, um, but so, you know, next time somebody asks me about, you know, kids me about how I only work on Sundays, I'm going to say, well, some of these other guys only work on Sundays and they make $81 million. How, what's with that? And you're upset that we don't pay property taxes for this thing that we built, but we didn't pay $500 million for putting up somebody else's temple. Um, so, and what is it? And I thought, well, you know, but what are the Vikings? Well, supposedly the Vikings really give back to the community and there's all this, you know, money that comes back and, and uh, you know, but people wouldn't, you know, bring their kids to that instead of, you know, church, would they? Because, you know, church would be a place where people would be trained in how to live their lives as kids. And I thought, well, wait a second, how many people take their kids to sports on Sundays? I mean, when I was a kid, that wasn't even an option. There was no Sunday morning sports. Um, I, I didn't play Little League Baseball because they had Sunday night and Wednesday night games, and I couldn't do that because I was at church. <laughs> but um, the, the issue of sports actually can become a thing, and it's because it symbolizes us. It's not just the, some business that somebody runs, Vikings, which it is, but they labeled it Minnesota Vikings, so now it's, it's us. If they win, Minnesota's good, Right? Um, so keep this in mind. This is not true of just the Vikings. Although false gods never fail to fail, false gods always fail. And yet it seems we never forget. We always fail to forget that they fail. And we keep running after them anyways. So what do we make false gods from? We make them from whatever seduces or awes us. Um, in Deuteronomy 4, he talks about don't look at, the, um, look at the sun and its brilliance and be overawed by it. Um, let me turn to Deuteronomy 4 here. Well, we had just read the earlier part of that about the, getting the ten words. Deuteronomy 4.15, but be very careful. You did not see the Lord's form on the day he spoke to you from the heart of the fire at Mount Sinai. So do not corrupt yourselves by making an idol in any form, whether of a man or a woman, an animal in the ground, a bird in the sky, a small animal that scurries along the ground, or a fish in the deepest sea. And when you look up into the skies and see the sun, moon, and stars, all the forces of heaven, don't be seduced or enticed into worshiping them. Yahweh, your God, gave them to all the peoples of the earth. In other words, everything you see in nature, everything that's amazing to you, God made it. Um, Ancient peoples, of course, were amazed at the sun because they gave life to everything. And it was kind of a symbol of of the God that gave life to everything. So Amon, Re, Re was a huge God for the Egyptians where they had just left. And, And he traveled across the sky and he 
was in charge of things and, and Newt the sky god ate him at the end of the day and then birthed him at the beginning of the day again. And they were, they were amazed with the sun which gave life. And they saw that as a, as a god. Um, so, the Lord your God gave them to all the peoples of the earth. Verse 20, remember that Yahweh rescued you from the iron smelting furnace of Egypt in order to make you his very own people and his special possession, which is what you are today. Keep in mind that he's rescued us. If you look back a little bit earlier, verse 5, Look, I now teach you these decrees and regulations just as Yahweh my God commanded me so that you may obey them in the land you're about to enter and occupy. They're now at the right before the land. Obey them completely and you will, be dis- and you will display your wisdom and intelligence among the surrounding nations. When they hear all these decrees, they will exclaim, How wise and prudent are the people of this great nation! For what great nation has a God as near to them as Yahweh our God is near to us whenever we call on Him? And what great nation has decrees and regulations as righteous and fair as this body of instructions that I'm giving you today? So Israel had something unique. And this particular command was very unique. Nobody else. So as scholars look at the, the commands in Scripture and all the different things that are happening in the Ten Commandments as well, they say, well, this is kind of like what the Babylonians said. This is kind of like Egypt. You know, other people said don't commit adultery. Other people said don't steal. Other people had regulations about slaves and this and that. Um, but this one, nobody else had. This was really strange. One God? And only one God? What about all the other stuff you need to take care of? And no idols? Not, no form that you can see or grab onto? How do you know you even have a God if there's no form? The, the rest of the nations didn't get it. And the truth is that even in our day, people do not get that. Now in the New Testament, they said, Jesus is Lord. And people will say, well, you know, you can have lots of lords, but Caesar is Lord. As long as you put Jesus and Caesar there, we're okay. But if you replace and make Jesus the only Lord, we're going to throw you to the lions. Um, so in our day, people are not happy with exclusive worship and service to God. As long as your worship and service to God kind of fits in with all the other things we need to get done as a culture, then it's okay. You know, you know Sunday's all right. Half a Sunday. Part of Sunday you can give to God. But otherwise, um, we've got things to get done. We make false gods from what we fear. We make false gods from what we trust. And we make false gods from what we need. Um, uh, This is from Chris, right? And he says it this way. Having, this is what the, how, these are things that the Bible recognizes us making false gods from. So he says, this is what the Bible says. Having alienated ourselves from the living God, our creator. We have a tendency to worship whatever makes us tremble with awe as we feel our tiny insignificance in comparison with the great magnitude that surrounds us. We seek to placate and ward off whatever makes us vulnerable and afraid. We then counter our fears by investing inordinate and idolatrous trust in whatever we think will give us the ultimate security we crave. And we struggle to manipulate and persuade whatever we believe will provide all our basic needs and enable us to prosper on the planet. 
So what are those things? Um, then he says, the only antidote to such idolatries and therefore the task of biblical mission is to lead people back to knowledge, to acknowledge the only true and living God in all of these domains, all of the places. So what is it that you're afraid of? You're afraid of wars in Sudan and terrorism? Are you afraid of health crises? Are you afraid of the economy, you not having enough money? Are you afraid of uh, your kids going bad? Are you afraid of what, what is it that grabs you? And makes you afraid, or, or, or what is it that you need? What is it that you trust to try to get over those? Those are the things that false gods are made from. So we asked, are there other, are, are the gods gods? And here's the paradox. So nothing is God compared to Yahweh. So here's what we tend to do. We tend to say, well, there's the supernatural. So that's where God is. And then there's angels and demons and maybe some other beings, maybe some spirits and maybe uh, some ghosts and maybe some ancestors and maybe some... That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says there is a creator who was there before there was anything else. And everything else is creation. Everything else is something he made. And so nothing is a god. It's a creation. It's something he made. It is not divine. So even if they call themselves gods, there, there is nothing compared to Yahweh. So Deuteronomy 4.39 says, Well, remember this and keep it firmly in mind. The Lord, Yahweh, is God, both in heaven and on earth, and there is no other. So Scripture is clear that there is no other God. And yet, Scripture keeps talking about the gods of the nations and this God and that God. So they are something to those who make and worship them. So clearly there is something there, but then there is not something there. So when we're worshiping creations, we're either worshiping what God made or what people made. What God made that's visible, like lions or, or uh, the sun or, or uh, something else, or something that's invisible, like an angel or a demon or some kind of power. The, the uh, Old Testament recognizes kind of the, the spirits around the throne who are, who are servants of God. And, and sometimes, you know, like the Satan who accuses with Job, they get, they get out of line. And um, those are, but it never compares them. So we have the wrong categories. Natural and supernatural are not the categories. The category is creator and creation. We can divide that into visible and invisible. And then there's what people made. There's visible things and there's invisible things, like ideologies and nations and economies. Um, the invisible, or the visible would be the idols. The invisible might be the gods that the idols represent. So, um, you following me? Okay. So, throughout Scripture... Um, there is this um, debate or dialogue because Israel was so unique. They have this debate and dialogue going on with other nations. So if you turn to Habakkuk, you've got a Bible in front of you there in the pew. Um, now this one's harder to find than Genesis and Exodus, but it's uh, before Matthew. 
um, after Nahum and the Minor Prophets. Maybe somebody look it up in the Pew Bible. Tell me where it is. Tell them where it is. Sixty-four. Six sixty-four. All right. Um, so Habakkuk gets upset and says, God, there's all this injustice and you're letting this injustice go on. There's no justice. The law has been become paralyzed. There's no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous so that justice has become perverted. Sounds like something some of us could pray too. Um, the Lord replies, with an, so he's complaining about in Israel, in, in Judah, there's no justice in Judah. The Lord replied, he says, look around at the nations, look and be amazed, for I'm doing something in your own day, this is verse 5, something you wouldn't believe even if someone told you about it. I'm raising up the Babylonians, a cruel and violent people. They will march across the land and conquer other lands. They're notorious for their cruelty and do whatever they like. Their horses are swifter than cheetahs and fierce, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their chariots charge from far away like eagles. They swoop down to devour their prey. Oh, they come all bent on violence. Their hordes advance like desert wind, sweeping captives ahead of them. They scoff at princes and kings and scorn all their fortresses. They, they simply pile up ramps of earth against their walls and capture them. They sweep past like the wind and are gone. But they are deeply guilty for their own strength is their God. So you see that they have this incredible military machine, the Babylonians, and they are super effective, but their own strength, their own military might, is their God. Now they labeled it with other gods like Marduk and Bel and whatever, um, but they, they were worshiping their own strength as a nation, their own military strength, and they were deeply guilty because of that. But notice what God is saying is that actually it wasn't that they were so strong. It was that God was sending them to deal with the injustice in Judah. God was in charge. Even if the people in Judah didn't get it, they just saw this military machine coming after them and wiping them out. They thought it was because those gods were so much more powerful maybe than Yahweh was. But no, Yahweh was in charge. He was disciplining them. And so they were tempted to, to um, serve the, the uh, strength of these other gods. Um, Habakkuk 2, let's, let's move on here to uh, chapter 2. Um, he says, verse 4, he says, Look at the proud, they trust in themselves and their lives are crooked, but the righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. Wealth is treacherous. So he, he sees wealth and, and trust in themselves as a problem. Then he goes on to talk about these idols. He says, what good is an idol carved by man? Or a cast image that deceives you. How foolish to trust in your own creation. A God that can't even talk. What sorrow awaits you who say to wooden idols, Wake up and save us! To speechless stone images you say, Rise up and teach us! Can an idol tell you what to do? They may be overlaid with gold and silver, but they are lifeless inside. But Yahweh the Lord is in His holy temple. He is here. Let all the earth be silent before him. So notice the contrast between these gods and the other gods. Now, people say, well, that, you know, that some, some scholars say, well, the ignorant, you know, the Israelites were kind of ignorant because they didn't understand that people weren't worshiping the statues. They were worshiping the gods behind the statues. They were worshiping the, um, but actually the Israelites were very astute. 
the Israelites, this is the way Wright puts it, that the alleged gods are in fact no different from the idols that represent them. They are both human constructs. You get that? So they weren't really worshipping this statue in Babylon of Bel and Marduk. They weren't really worshipping that. They were worshipping the, the gods, Bel and Marduk. But the Bible gets that. In fact, one, one mocking place it talks about the, the, when the, the gods of Babylon are going to be destroyed and they're going to be hauled off on ox carts and Bel and Marduk are going to be up there going, oh, 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 I wish I could keep my idol from falling over. But they can't, because they're nothing, because they're powerless. They can't even kick, and, and it, of course there's all this other mockery in Scripture of somebody, he carves a wooden idol and then he takes the shavings and, built, and has his idol over it, and then he, tr- he has his dinner over the shavings, and then he turns around and bows down to this stick. That doesn't make any sense. But you see, they're human constructs. And then he goes on and says, national gods are the ultimate deification of human pride. So the Babylonian national gods, Bel and Marduk, were really about, we, as Babylonians, are so amazing. And we're projecting that onto our amazing gods. So when, when Hezekiah was being invaded by the Assyrians, do you remember the Assyrian king said, why do you think Yahweh is going to be able to stand before you? All none of those other gods stood before me, my king, and, and my military machine? And Hezekiah goes and he, into the altar and he says, Yahweh, you hear his boasts, but you know, we know that you are not any of those gods. You are the living God, the creator, so you can do anything. Those gods were nothing, so of course he could take it over. Because actually, God was behind arranging the, the, what was happening in, uh, in the time. So, here is, uh, I spent a little time, you know, a semester in Jerusalem a long time ago. Took an eight-day trip to Egypt. And I went down to Luxor, to the Temple of Thebes down there. And um, this is about the time of the, uh, about the time that the Israelites were there, although this is south of where they were. But um, this is kind of what it would have looked like. They would have had uh, the idol put in this special box and would have paraded it and taking it from one temple and taking it down to, uh, to get together and have some fertility, you know, some sex between the gods so that everything would be fertile. And uh, at the same time, though, they would, they would re-crown, re-coronate the pharaoh. And the connection between the gods and the pharaoh, as I studied this morning, I realized how close that connection was. So this is what the, uh, that temple looks like. It, I mean, it was, it was buried until late 1800s, and they dug it out. But you see this... Uh, See the people here? This is impressive stuff. If you were back at 1400 BC and what it looked like then, all painted up and beautiful, this was really impressive. In fact, it's impressive enough that the, the French stole the other obelisk and put it in the middle of Paris because um, they, they were impressed with it. Um, and, uh, and this is just the front door. This temple complex goes on and on behind this. Um, so here, but what's interesting is actually there's this combination. So this statue here is actually a statue of a god, but it's actually the god Ramses II. In other words, it's a deified president. The president or the king has become a god. And Ramses wanted to make himself 
a god. So he, so there's the statues of of him, um, and here's the front of that. Here's another god slash president. Um, you'll see the it explains here. Tall an obelisk is a tall four sided narrow tapering monument which ends in a pyramid like shape at the top, and were carved out of a single stone. Obelisks were prominent in the architecture of the ancient Egyptians, who placed them in pairs at the entrance of temples. The obelisk symbolized the sun god Ra. And during the brief religious reformation, it was said to be like a petrified ray of the sun. It was also thought that the god existed within the structure. Obelisks were usually set up as monuments to pharaohs. Um, you might recognize the other obelisk there. Uh, that's the Washington Monument, which we set up as a, to, to our pharaoh, king, president. Um, because, and what, what are we really, uh, of course... We have other temples in Washington, D.C. Um, with other deified presidents in them. Um, now, yeah, I'm, I know I'm getting... Um, is this just a piece of cloth? Or is it more than that? So it, it can be an idol, I think. Because we make it represent this invisible thing that we have created called America. But we're still worshiping something we made. We made this country called America and we think it's so powerful, so amazing, and we symbolize it with this. So that if you touch that, people get really upset. Right? So now... When you get to the temple of the Vikings, and uh, you get there, and if somebody bows down in the end zone and, and acknowledges God's existence, they get upset with that, because that's kind of like, you know, that God doesn't belong here. Keep that in church. If somebody bows down when this idol is displayed, people get really upset, because that's bigger than sports. And it's dissing veterans because they have paid the ultimate sacrifice. Stay with me here, folks. Only one person has paid the ultimate sacrifice. Only Jesus died to save you. Now, I appreciate this country. And I appreciate my father and other people who were, who were veterans. My, my, my father-in-law. I appreciate what they, what they have done. And it's okay to be American. But don't make it come anywhere near to Yahweh. Let's not mix gods. Let's not say, well, God takes care of my going to heaven part, but who's going to take care of my social security? Who's going to take care of my health care? Who's going to take care of my money in my pocket? That is what sometimes absorbs our imaginations and our thinking and our talking and our... Thank you, Pastor Jim. <laughs> sometimes America can become a god. I'm sorry, but false gods never fail to fail. Which is why we're so upset. Because America's not everything we hope it would be. And I am upset, because I'm 
I put America kind of up there. I, you know, when I was in Kenya and Tanzania, politics were kind of messy, but I didn't feel responsible. And I expected them to not be quite as good as America. But politics here aren't that much different. People are still into power and greed and willing to do whatever to get that. And um, I feel more upset about it because I, I want America to be better. I want it to be the best God. Um, I want it to be more powerful and more righteous and more... And so honestly, it can be a God for me. I can depend on it. I can depend on the government to take care of me. And I can depend on... I can also depend on the economy. I can depend on the money in my pocket to take care of me, to feed me, to be security for me. Oh, you know, I've, I'm okay. I got some money in the bank. Really? Or am I depending on God who gave me the money in the bank, who gave me the strength to earn and, and do any, anything with that? It's easy for us to get, and they're not supposed to be even close to equal. But sometimes we can, you know, God's taking care of part of things. Yahweh's got that part covered. But then there's these other things. I need some other gods to take care of. God doesn't pay my rent. Really? God doesn't give me a job. Really? Here's another one. Education. Ooh, I'm kind of a... Uh, I'm down on racism but, racism, but I can be kind of big on educationism. People are educated somehow just a little bit better than people without education. Really? Um, so... Here's another one. Um, so I'm going to go have some tests taken later this month to see if I um, might have some prostate cancer. But you know what? I'm not depending on the medical system to heal me. I'm still using it. You know, there was this snake on the pole that Moses said, you know, it's okay. Look at that to trust God. But God's going to heal you. But when that starts moving into... That's why we get so upset at doctors and the medical system, why we sue them for millions, because you were supposed to heal me. You're never supposed to let a baby die. You're never supposed to... Because we try to make them God. You know who has the power of health and sickness, life and death? It's not Medica. It's Yahweh. Only Yahweh. So I, there's a, a list taken from him re referencing a whole bunch of other people and a few others I threw in, but here's a few modern islands. Idols. Nations, technique and technology, money, sex, power, science, ideologies, political party, work, family, Suburbia, individualism, ecology, race, media, ideologies like revolution, material prosperity, guaranteed security, relativism, hedonism, consumerism, medicine. We're not quite up to where the Egyptians were. They had a good 500 gods. And I could show you the whole family tree. But uh, we're getting there. Of course, if we all pooled our different, our different we'd probably get there, right? 
Um, here's the thing. What is it that I love, that I trust, that I fear? Really? What is it that absorbs my imagination? What is it that keeps me up at night? What is it that keeps me on Facebook and keeps me upset about what's on Facebook? I don't see people too often on Facebook going, Yahweh is amazing. Once in a while, then we're like, oh, that's so trite. Um, remember these? Love, success, health. We talked about that with, with uh, Jacob. And then there's deep idols underneath of those idols. The desire for false gods that are underneath their power, approval, reputation, control. Any of you want that? I do. I do. Some of those are tough for me. Approval? Yeah. I like it when people like it. I like it when, when people like my sermon. Um, I appreciate critique as well. So you can give me that. I'm giving you plenty of opportunity here to give me critique. So, uh, um, and it'd be easier to not push some of these because I, I like approval. Um, reputation. Boy, my reputation is like really precious to me. And I don't like to, uh, I don't like to show off. What's not the, but you know what happens when that happens? We end up lying, cover up. I, when I look at some of the things that have happened in the church, like a Willow Creek, and you know, they could have confronted this in 1980, but they wanted to keep the reputation clean so they, could, so they could grow this church that was such a cool thing. It was for God, right? The Catholic Church in Pennsylvania. You know, they're, they're trying to keep it on the down low, keep it covered up because some of the sex abuse stuff because their reputation is really important. But false gods never fail to fail. And be sure your sin's going to find you out. If you make reputation your God... If I make reputation my God, if we make Bethel Christian Fellowship's reputation something greater than God, it's bound to fail us. We need to be honest. Now, you don't need to tell everybody everything about everything you've ever done. But we don't want to live in shame or secret shame because God's forgiven that stuff. Right? Um, control. I, uh, I don't have as much problem with that now that I'm in America because I think I'm in control. <laughs> Actually, when I was in Tanzania, I talked about... Um, when I was in Tanzania, I used to do a lot more like... So we have water in the car, right? And the car is fixed, right? Because if the car broke down, there was no place to fix it. And if I didn't bring water along, there was going to be no clean water. So my kids are like, you know, Dad, we put water in the car. It's chill, you know, because... I had had experiences where I ran out of water. And I didn't want to have that. So I'd get anxious about it. Now I let God deal with the big stuff, you know. I, I can't control the money I'm getting and whatever. And so those are big things. But water, I've got to take care of that. Control. Control. 
Here, I just think the government's taking care of that. So I don't have to, I don't have to worry about whether I'm going to get through the roads or not here because um, I'm trusting somebody else to be in control of that. But um, control is a big thing, and that's where my anxiety issues really come from, trying to be in control. And you know what? I get really anxious because I can't. In the end, I, I really can't. I'm not in control. And neither are my gods in control. And when I was in Tanzania, I found out, you know, I, uh, medical isn't enough to keep me healthy, and my American passport isn't enough to keep me safe, and then my uh, money isn't enough to get me through stuff. And you know what? I'm out of control. So either I acknowledge that and say God's in control, or I try to be in control somehow. Um, anything you guys are... Some of you who are like me, we're pushing things. We're starting to get test results that are a little bit worrying. We're starting to have some physical things that don't go away. And I've noticed we start to like take a bunch of vitamins. We go to, oh, I'm, I'm doing the naturopath thing. I'm doing the, we, we got to find something to get control and get that health back. Some of you older folks are laughing. I got it. I got it. Somehow we're going to, we're going right, to get back in control, get that healthy body we had back again, right? What's an idol? Back to Tim Keller. Is anything more important to you than God? Anything that absorbs your heart, your mind, your imagination more than God? Anything you seek to give you what only God can give? I want you to think about that. Is there anything... Anything that rivals that for you? Anything that you say, well, God's got this, but this piece, I need to take care of. Or this piece, we're going to take care of. Here's the positive statement from Deuteronomy 6 of this same thing. Now, what I want you to get is, this is the foundation of everything. These are the first two commandments for a reason. They are base line. And we're not going to get the rest of them unless we get this right. You're not going to, especially the way Jesus said it, you're not going to be able to not commit adultery or not lust if sex is one of your idols. You're not going to be able to not murder, not hate if actually you're upset about something else. Right? You, in other words, the rest of the list doesn't happen without this foundation. And yet, these, I think, are the ones we forget. Don't we? It's easy to not really think about idolatry. But tell you what, this is hard to do. And this, actually, I don't know if you noticed, but uh, it's on, if you enter our building, on the left side, there's this big statement that our, uh, the synagogue that was here before put in there. Serve the Lord your God with all your hearts. They put it there. So there's a few radicals out there. The Jews, the Christians, and the Muslims are all radical about saying there is only one God, the God of Abraham, and that's who we must serve. Now we understand them different, um, but 
There is... Listen, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh alone. Because Yahweh alone has the power to heal you. Yahweh alone has the power to give you breath and life. Yahweh alone has the power to feed you. Yahweh alone has the power to make your kids what they're supposed to be. Yahweh alone has the power to give you a husband or a wife. Yahweh alone has the power to give you friends. Yahweh alone has the power to make you content in your singleness. Yahweh alone has the power to give you success in whatever you're doing. Yahweh alone has what you need. So you must love Yahweh, the Lord, your God, with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And that word for strength seems to be not just about like your physical strength, but all the other resources that you have. Your economic strength, your, your, your land, your, your husband or wife, your family, all, all the strength that you have, all the resources you have. Love Yahweh your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. That is not easy to do. Now, God, other things can come under that. So if I'm loving Yahweh with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind, as a service to Him, I can also love my wife, love my kids, love my congregation. But if any of them start getting higher, so loving my kids is more important When my kids were sick in Tanzania and I still felt like God wanted us to be in Tanzania but they were sick all the time, that was a tough choice. But I finally said, you know what, I think I have to love Yahweh and do whatever He told me to do and trust Him with my kids. Glad I did because now they're trusting Him with being in Uganda, Kenya and India. Even though I'm saying, wait a second, are you okay in India? Testing me again. Um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And he goes on and says, you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your t- children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let's do a little reverse here. This week, what did you talk to your children or other people about? What did you think about when you were going to bed and when you were getting up? What was tied to your... Well, I probably know what was tied to your hand, right? Um, but maybe you could put a screensaver on there or have uh, Bible Gateway come up um, <laughs> a little faster. Um, Think about what actually was tied to your hands, what you were actually talking about. What is it that you say again and again to your children? Get a good education. You need to be a success. You're never going to get a good job if you don't. Is that what you say? Clean up. Do the, What is it that we really teach our kids? Is the number one thing we teach our kids, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind? Not only with our mouths, but with our actions, with our investments, with the way we spend our money and our time and our 
talk. Is that what we talk about at the dinner table? Or when we're driving them someplace? That's what we're supposed to do. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home, when you're on the road, when you're going to bed, when you're getting up. Your kids are supposed to be hearing this all the time because it's just life. It's what they're depending on. I hope at a minimum, I shouldn't say this, a minimum, but I hope you memorize these commands, these ten words. And I hope you memorize them with your kids. During this time that we're talking about these ten words, stick one at a time. And then talk about what does it mean? Because your kids aren't automatically going to know what it means to not have any other gods or not have any other idols. That's going to take a little discussion. And a few examples. Um, Jesus, when Satan came to Jesus and said, I have all the kingdoms of the world. You can have them. Just bow down to me. What did Jesus say? Let me get back to you on that. No. Funny thing, he had memorized Deuteronomy. Seems like. At least some big chunks of it. Maybe he'd memorized the whole five books of the Torah. A lot of kids that day did. They had a lot of muttering and memorizing, and they, they actually did a lot of this stuff. Somehow he knew... You know what? That doesn't fit with this scripture. And when, when the, the law, the judges said, what's the most important command? Because some of us have felt like all the commands were important. Equally, there's all 300, whatever there are of them. Um, Jesus replied, the number one command, what's the most important command? You must love Yahweh your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. First and greatest. If you get this right, if you get this right, you're going to get it all right. Truly. And He's going to lavish His love on you. He's going to give you an opportunity to really reflect the image of God, to really glorify Him, to really be loved by Him, if you get this right. The second is equally important. So that's the first and most important, greatest. But the second is just as important. Love your neighbor as yourself. And we'll see as we go through the Ten Commandments that the first ones are about loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the later ones are about loving your neighbor as yourself. And then there's some thrown in there about how we handle land and economy and, and uh, the, the rest of creation. These two. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So Jesus didn't deny everything else that's built on it, but he said, this is the foundation. Now some of us think that's all we need. It is all you need, if you can follow it. But God gave us five books plus, so we get illustrations of what we mean by that. What it means to really follow with all your heart, and what it means to not follow with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. What it means to really love God, with all we have. I don't know about you, but for me, can I have the worship team come up? And I'd, I'd like you to sing um, You're Exalted Above All Gods, the one you sang earlier. Um, we had the other one in there. We'll get to that one too. But... Um, 
I don't know about you, but for me, this is a challenge. I don't always perceive it as a challenge. I don't always think I have a problem with it. But oftentimes when I dig down under my other problems and my other issues and my other struggles, this is where the real problem is. Have you given God all? Your heart, soul, strength, mind? And put everything else in order under it as a way to do that? If you have, he said he's going to lavish his love on you. His unfailing love for thousands of generations. If you haven't, you're missing out. And you're going to end up with problems to the next generations. So, um, God passionately, jealously loves you. And he loves other people. That's why he wants you to love him back. Because he knows that is what you were made for. You were made to give him glory. You were made to live life that way. And that will make your love, your, your life, into that lavish love unfailing. But other loves always fail. Other false gods always fail. I want you to take um, just a minute. Think where you are right now. And, and you're probably going to need to do this all, all through the week. I've been doing it all through last week. I'm going to continue doing it this week. What, what, what is it that gets in the way of me giving God all? All of my love, all of my heart, all of my strength, all of my mind, all of my thoughts, all of my... What is it that keeps you from that? Close your eyes for a minute. Lord, we, we want to hear from you. We want your lavish love to be poured out on us. Your unfailing love. We confess that we often depend on other things. Individually, in our culture, we try to get what we need in ways that you didn't design. You know what we need. You want to show your love to us in those things. Lord, I pray that you would do some diagnostic tests on our heart, on our resources and our strength, our mind. Help us to see what parts of our heart, what parts of our thinking might be devoted to other gods. Lord, we, um, we ask you to capture our hearts. We give you our hearts again. We say we want you to be king we want you to be our only God. We want to have that dynamic, lavish love relationship with you. Exclusive love relationship with you. But we confess that we can't do it. Please, please capture our hearts, our affections, our thoughts, our emotions, our time, our money, our relationships. We give all of us 
to you so that you can give all of you to us. Let's stand up and sing this. Let's confess it. And then this week, I want you to be on the lookout. Think about how you're using your time, your money, your, your thoughts, where they're headed, what is capturing you. And be praying that. I want to love you with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. I want to experience your love in all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. some of you are going to need to do what Warren is doing. You're going to want to come up here and you're going to want to say, you know, God, I want to commit myself again. I want to give you this part. God's already talked to you about some part of your heart that's divided, some part of your strength that's divided. You want to come up here and you want to say, I want to give it all to you. You're welcome. And there will be others to pray with you if you want that. You're welcome to come up here and recommit that other part or maybe you're saying you know I don't even know what what parts of my heart but I, before I leave here I want to talk to God about that and see what he has to say to me so we're going to sing some more you're welcome to come up here and pray um, go out and follow this through the, through the week do the diagnostic test and, and let God treat any place that's uh overgrown with other growths, other uh, idols. So Lord, we want to exalt you with all, all of our heart, soul, strength, mind, relationships, resources. We want to love you with everything because you are worthy. You are the only creator. You are the only one we can depend on. You are the only one we can depend on. We confess that we have depended on other gods, other hopes and trusts and people and um, systems that we thought would help us out. But we confess that only you are able. We thank you for all the systems and people and things that you put in our lives, but we want to take them as gifts from you and we want to put them in their place. We want to love you with all. But we know that you have to do that in us. We're not even capable. So woo us. Romance us. Draw us to yourself. Help us to remember how you've delivered us. How you have changed us. How you have given yourself for us. Thank you for giving Jesus to die for our sins and our idolatries. We confess them, we turn from them, we repent, and we turn back to you. Help us, Jesus. Help us, Lord. Amen. Now I'm going to give a benediction. Go to pursue Yahweh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to show his greatness to our world. Amen.